Lord, I pray that your, your, you would put your words in my mouth, that the, the thoughts, the phrases would form easily and quickly, that your words would be spoken. I pray that you would guide us through this next hour, that confusion would not be found, that we would all be encouraged and strengthened in what we find in your word. Pray, Lord, that you would be here strongly, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of something like this, I guess I would come down to faith versus fate. And you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Faith versus fate. Sometimes you can hear, uh, I would say many times, I guess, you can hear a, a Christian describe an event that has happened in their life and they may attribute it may attribute it to something that God simply willed to happen in their life. And that phrase, that type of uh, description, has always bothered me a little bit. <clears throat> and what do we mean? What's the difference between faith, between trusting in God versus fate? And I would describe that, and we'll describe both of these, faith and fate, as we go along. Fate seems to be in many people's mind that um, what will be, will be. That God has desired, He has designed, He has even ordained something to happen in my life and there's really nothing that I can do about it. There's nothing that anybody else, even if grandma prays for me a lot, that that will change it. That fate is simply something that they look upon as it's going to happen in my life. And yet as a Christian... They attribute it to the hand of God in their life. That very well may have been somewhat confusing. It's a confusing topic. And I want to start out with this verse of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because I readily admit there are things on this side of heaven that you and I now sit that we're not going to know everything about. And so I fully admit that we're going to be skirting around the edges of things that we can know, and things that we can't know. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For, we now, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then, or on the other side of death, we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Paul is using the, the language I am trying to implore a little bit. He's talking a little bit about a different topic, possibly. But it still holds true that on this side of heaven, there are some things that we just look through a glass darkly, even though God may talk about it in his Bible or mention it. But on the other side, he seems to be saying that we're going to know some, some of these things very clearly. That as I am known by God, he can see everything about me. He knows my thoughts. The Bible says he knows the hairs on my head. That when I get on the other side, I will know some of these topics in the same way that I am known by him. I will know the hairs of, on the head of some of the, these topics. We see through a glass darkly now, and someday we'll see it clearly. Yet, the Bible still, I think, does mention some things that we should know. Faith versus fate. How do we go about this? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. And let's start with, it seems like, a definition that the Bible gives us for faith. If not a, if not a definition, it sure is an illustration. Hebrews chapter 11, 
which lists a hall of fame of biblical characters where the Bible wants to delineate, to illustrate faith by looking at these people. Verse 1, Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. First of all, faith does have to do with things that you can't see. By the very definition of faith, if you could hold it, if you could see it, if you could turn it around in 360 degrees and look at all sides of it, you wouldn't need much faith. You would have it. You could show it to somebody. You could easily dissect it yourself. And yet, the Bible says that faith is something that involves things that we can't quite see perfectly for sure. But we hope for it in the same sentence. It's something that we hope for. It is the evidence of things that we can't see. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. Now in the following verses, it starts to describe scenarios that describe faith. Let's skip down to verse 4. By faith, Abel offered. Everyone, please say the word offered. By faith, Abel offered. That's a verb. That's an action. He did something. Faith caused Abel to do what? To offer to God a sacrifice that he was certain by faith that God would be pleased by it. Why was he certain? Because he had evidence. God had told them about offering sacrifices. So Abel, in good faith, we might say, he offered to God something. Verse 5, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. He wasn't found. Verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Verse 6 is kind of special. It tells us a character, a quality of God, that faith must encapsulate. It says that without faith, if you don't have it, you cannot please him. And it gives us a somewhat of a definition for he that cometh to God. You, if you approach God, if you go after him, if you look for him, how must you find him? You must believe that he is. Number one, that he's out there. You must believe that he exists, comma, and add to that that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That second part, that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It seems to portray to me that the person that thinks that God just wants to hit people over the head with a stick to try to teach them something, that mindset very likely is not going to find God. This verse, in describing faith, says that you need to believe that he's out there and you believe that he's also a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That tells me that when I go looking for God, I should look for him with this mindset. He's a rewarder. And if I diligently seek him, if I read my Bible, even if I start to get tired, maybe I put on some music, that, some rocky music that just make me want to climb stairs, 
something that keeps me going, if I diligently seek him, what's going to happen? I should live with this promise, that he is a rewarder. He's going to show me something. When I do read the Bible, when I go seeking him for answers, if my mindset is this is a waste of time, he doesn't show up for his people, he doesn't care about me, all those non-rewarding type thoughts, if that's in my heart, this verse kind of discourages the thought that I'm going to find him. It says I'm supposed to think of him in these terms. He's a rewarder. And when I go looking for him, he shows up if I'm diligent. Another characteristic of God. For somebody walking this earth to try to find him, or to find more of him, to find answers for their life, there is a quality that God is looking for. Diligence. He will reward the person that doesn't stop, that continues. That means when trouble comes, and we're going to look at a lot of people tonight, different people, there is one characteristic that isn't all of them. They were diligent. They didn't give up. They didn't quit. And internally, they fought some battles. In all of their lives, there were circumstances that were very difficult. They didn't quit. They didn't really even consider it, unless maybe just for a little bit. Then they realized, these are not the thoughts I normally think. They stamp it out, and they pick themselves back up, and on they march with God. You know, don't ever think of yourself that you're somehow a bad Christian, a bad person. You're disappointing God if a certain thought comes to your mind. You can be a bad person. You can disappoint God if you're still thinking that same thought two weeks from then. You don't bring it in, make it a cup of coffee, put it in your rocking chair, and listen to it go back and forth. We take control over our mind, and if those thoughts come, if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, if you realize, man, I've been thinking something, feeling something, letting a certain emotion sink in, it's not godly, you can take control of that. You're going to see people that did this. We're talking about faith versus fate. Fate is something... It, it has the connotation that we really don't have control over it. It's just going to be. Christians, I think, sometimes engage in this fate thought by saying, by thinking, God's on the throne. Now, there's nothing wrong with that phrase. Nothing wrong with that phrase unless you mean there's really nothing I can do. God will decide it. There's a problem there. Because God has clearly put things in our power. The power, the most wonderful power of choice. In the Bible, these people that distinguish, that we're going to look to illustrate the difference between faith and fate, they were very good at recognizing, I've got a choice in this matter. And they were going to do whatever they could to put themselves in God's line of thinking so that he could bless them. They were not going to get back in the rocking chair and make up the mind, well, fate will determine whether or not I go right or left. They took it upon themselves to, if I can find God's mind about this, I'm going to do everything I can in that power. I'm getting on that road. And then they expected God to show up. There are some people that think they expect God to show up by going down fate's road. That, well, whatever will be, will be. 
And I don't think you can see in the Bible or teach in the Bible that God blesses, that he gets involved, that he shows his strong hand on that road of thought that just leaves it up to whatever will be, will be. I hope we're clearing things up. Language is a, there's a big barrier sometimes. I want us to be clear. Faith versus fate. When we say the word faith in Christian circles, what we should mean is something similar at least. It should include what we just read here in Hebrews 11. These people, it caused them to act on something. It says that Abel offered sacrifices. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of things not seen as yet, by faith, by faith, Noah couldn't see the flood coming yet, but he was warned. So what did he do? He M-O-V-E-D. He moved. What if Noah would have come to the conclusion that maybe evolution would take care of a boat for me, that these trees would realize the flood's coming, they'd just kind of interwoven themselves, the pitch would fall in the crack so it wouldn't leak, and a boat will form. Of course not. Noah moved. He got on the road of faith, believing that I don't know what's all going to take place there. God probably didn't tell Noah the date the animals would start to show up. But he knew. Somewhere on that road, those animals were showing up. And before that day comes, I better have a boat. It better be ready. It better be stocked. And I better be ready with my family and anybody that listens to my preaching to get in that sucker and wait it out. He moved. Noah moved. Faith. Faith in a Christian should cause us to move. Sometimes it's a mental, a mental moving. You can find the, the thoughts in your head to be altered, to be changed. And faith will cause you to start looking at scenarios, looking at situations, and expecting something good to happen. That's what faith does. It's moving. And when it's moving, it expects God's hand to show up somewhere, sometime. Now this is the part that we see through a glass darkly, don't we? The Bible does not tell us exactly when the animals will show up. It doesn't tell us exactly who is going to respond to our call. But we march on that road, and faith keeps us going. Faith is what encourages us. We lift up our head after looking at the situation around us. It's bleak. The kids don't want to build a boat today. Mom's mad because all I do is build boats. I don't fix the drain. And all we do is march in this direction. Faith encourages that there's a reward out there someday. There's a reward from God. Faith thinks that way. Now let's look at some examples. Um, you can probably guess where I would be going with some of this. Some of these people, like a George Washington. You think about the qualities that were needed in a person in Washington's situation. He was in a country where a third of the people wanted to pull away from England. A third wanted to actually stay with England and would fight to do so. They would spy against Washington for the British, and the last third didn't care. They weren't interested. They weren't going to help either side. They wanted to just be left alone. That's not the best of circumstances. Only a third of the people are with you, and a third of them, you've got to watch out that they're going to tip your movements to the enemy. He also had almost no supplies, no money, and he was fighting the strongest army and navy on the planet. 
Thank goodness that Army and Navy had to cross several thousand miles of ocean to get there, weaken them a little bit, and he used that to his advantage. He never got out in the open and had a major battle one against the other because he knew in that he could get crushed and he could lose in one day. In one day he could lose his whole army and they'd be done. So what did he do? He fought little skirmishes where he would find the British, he would sneak in and attack a little bit, and before they could turn around and counterattack, he would run off and hide in the woods, melt into the next town, into a cave somewhere where they couldn't find him. And by doing that, he slowly weakened their morale. He wore them down. They didn't want to fight. Pretty soon they're telling general in the British Army, we'd rather go home than stay here another eight years. And eventually, he won. Now, that's a long time to fight, eight years. And in those things, you have things, those circumstances like Valley Forge, where the, the winter is now set in, and you don't have any supplies. You can't even eat. At least nothing that you would like to eat. And you have to convince not just yourself, but the people that are following you, that are looking at you with those sunken in eyes of depression. Can't we just go home? What made Washington convince them that they could win? He had this faith in God. This is what Washington said after the battle was over, when he was inaugurated as president. Although we cannot, by the best concerted plans, absolutely command success. This is a little bit what we're talking about. He's saying that we cannot just guarantee that what's going to, to happen is going to be immediate success. Although the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. What's that mean? That means that just because you're stronger doesn't mean you win. Sometimes God intervenes on one side. And the swift don't always win. And the strong don't always win. Sometimes God intervenes. Yet without presumptuously waiting. He said this is what we're not going to do. Without presumptuously waiting for what? For miracles to be wrought in our favor. He said we're not just going to wait on the side of faith in our rocking chair and expect God to give us our liberties that we desire, remove the British off the coast. We're not just going to presume, presumptuously wait for these miracles to happen. It's not a fate worldview. It's a faith. Faith is action. Faith gets on the road and starts marching. And down that road, then the miracles will show up. When you put your faith into action, then God's out there waiting to be wrought in our favor. It is our indispensable duty. Can you hear the word action, movement in those words? It said we're not waiting for these miracles just to show up. It is our indispensable duty, action, with the deepest gratitude in heaven. So while you're moving, while you're marching down that road, what are your thoughts? The deepest gratitude toward heaven. While he is marching in faith down that road, and this is what he's telling his soldiers, while he is marching, while he is doing his duty, 
with what's going on in his mind is the deepest gratitude to heaven for the past. Why would he be looking toward the past? Because he remembers all the times God showed up. With the deepest gratitude to heaven for the past. And let's stop there and what happened in the past. Many years before Washington fought the British, he was fighting for the British. He was a British colonel in their regular army, fighting the French and the Indians. And there was a battle where Washington's command, his group, was ambushed by the French and the Indians. They walked right into it. And they were in a, the, the worst spot possible. People were falling on every side of Washington. He rode back up and back the front, encouraging his troops to stay there. And he later wrote in a letter to his mother that he had three horses shot out from under him. There were holes in his garments. And yet he was untouched, totally, completely unharmed. He wrote to his mother something along the lines of that he, he believed he was preserved for something higher. Many years later, Many years later, he had an occasion to go back to that area. And while he was there, a very aged Indian chief came to visit him. His young Indian scout brought, led this Indian chief into Washington. And he began to tell him that he was in charge of the Indians at the battle where Lincoln had the horses shot out, the holes in his garments, and he wasn't shot. The chief told him that I have these marksmen of mine that never miss. And I ordered them to train all their weapons on you because I recognize that you are the leader. You are the one that were keeping those soldiers from fleeing. And after 20-some minutes of firing and with no consequence, these men never miss and every single one of them missed 10 times in a row, I ordered them to stop firing. And I told them that it, God, and of course, we're not looking at the, this chief's definition of God, whether he knew God or not, he probably didn't. But he was describing that the God of battles has made sure that you will never die in war. That's the conclusion he came to. He said something has happened to this man that providence is protecting him. And this Indian chief, when he heard Washington had returned to that region, he traveled and traveled and traveled to relay that story to him. From that moment on, Washington was never really scared in battle. He had been traveling down this road with God of faith, and he now knew that the gratitude that he had toward heaven for the past, the times when God had showed up, that he would show again. And humble confidence in its smiles, that heaven smiles on our future. He thought that as long as we continue doing what God tells us to do, God's hand will continue to show up. Now again, we see through a glass darkly, don't we? We don't see it clearly. He doesn't know exactly how this is going to work out. This is what we're trying to illustrate, the definition of faith. He doesn't know. But his, the evidence that he has that he reminds himself of, just as he is in this speech to his friends. The evidence that he has points to when we walk down this way, we don't just 
sit here and expect fate to take over for us, but we, in our action, doing what we think God wants us to do is right, seems to show up on our behalf. He seems to show up on our behalf. That's Washington's fate. Keep in mind, the reward or punishment for losing a battle is not a candy bar or no candy bar. It's the loss of your life. This is how deep their faith was, that God would show up. One more example from him. Well, let, let's finish this. He's talking about their future operations. To make use. Use is a verb. It's an action, activity. To make use of all the means in our power. That's the difference between fate. Expecting something just to take over. You're a passive acceptance of events. There's nothing I can do anyway. I mean, whatever will be, will be. It's not how he thought. He said, our power. That means going down the road of faith. What I can control. What I can do. To make use of all the means in our power for our defense and security. Wanted to use that as a mindset. Do you see how a person thinks differently? He is remembering what God has done. And he's always bringing that with him that if I keep on this road, God's going to do that stuff again for me. That's faith. Washington, in, a, in the revolution, he was trapped on Long Island. And that geography is, is kind of odd to, to talk about in a speech because there's some peninsulas, it's surrounded, there's a river that comes by there, and it's surrounded on three different sides from water. And Washington was trapped there. The British Navy had him, had him hemmed in, and on the other side where the land was, there was the, uh, the British general that had him cornered. And every day, there are reinforcements arriving in the British ranks, and they're already outnumbered three to one, the Americans. Their supplies are running low, and Washington's lieutenant comes to report to him these facts. And he asks Washington, what shall we do? If we surrender, we know they'll kill us all. They've already told us that. We've signed the declaration. We're treasonous. They'll kill us. Yet if we fight, it's sure defeat. What shall we do? Washington, who was staring off into the distance, he turned to his young lieutenant and he said, we will rely on the protection of divine providence said those words in August of 1776, just a month and a half before in July of 1776, they had finished the Declaration of Independence, which ends with that sentence, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. Why were they risking their lives? With a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Providence. They fully expected God to show up. Think of that. People that started our country, they fully expected God to show up and fight on their behalf. Not because they believed in fate, that if they just sat around and waited, something good would happen. Not at all. They believed in faith, where they marched, they took action that they thought God had ordained or that God approved of, and they thought, as long as we do those things, that's where God's at. He'll, f he'll find us on that road. His arm will show up, and he'll deliver us. 
The next day in this situation, Washington's surrounded on three sides. The British don't attack. <clears throat> the next day, they don't attack. Inexplicably, they don't attack. That night, Washington stayed up during the night, and he told his lieutenant that he believed that God had told him something. He said, we are going to escape across the river through the night. <clears throat> and he, Lincoln's most recent reinforcements, they were all fishermen. Just so happened. Fishermen that knew boats, that knew how to get in and out of boats quietly. You had to get cannons on those boats, horses on those boats without whinnying. The cannons couldn't roll and rock back and forth. If the British heard it and woke and saw them on the water, it's very easy to shoot somebody who's rowing a boat. You can't out-oar a bullet. You move very slowly. All through the night, Washington and his men go back. It's a mile and a mile back, oaring over and over. When the day begins to break, there is still many men, and Washington are still on the wrong side of the river. And as the day begins to break, it was recorded in their diaries that a very peculiar fog rolled in. It was so thick that, you, that they said you could not discern a man from three paces. And it was peculiar that it settled over the American camp and the British camp. It was not a general, widespread fog. It settled over their camp and over the British. The morning sun did not burn it off. It lasted till noon when Washington, the last person across, gets out of the boat, steps on land, the fog lifts, the British see him, they fire a couple Desperate shots as he's going over the hill and they all escape safely. The whole revolution would have ended right there had he been discerned. He told his lieutenant, we will rely on the protection of divine providence. Those men lived with a certain worldview <clears throat> that fate, where a third of the country thought whatever will be, will be. They didn't receive or live in the, the glory of the rewards when it was over. The third that had the worldview of faith, that we believe in what is what we think is right, as God has shown us the right. That as they went down that path, they were, were rewarded with a new country. New principle. Something that had been that the earth had never seen the way our government was founded. Lincoln, excuse me, Washington said this when he was leaving office. <clears throat> he said that the propitious smiles of heaven, the propitious smiles of heaven, in other words, the favor of God, looking down on mankind, the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right. <clears throat> in other words, He's saying you can't go down the wrong road where the eternal rules of order and right, where they don't exist, where you're going against those eternal rules. You cannot go down that road and expect the propitious smiles of heaven. He's telling the, the nation that the reason that we have experienced this favor of God is because we were on the right path. That mean everything that was done perfectly. You have human beings. Sometimes somebody's going to do something wrong. 
But as you march, as you put your faith in action, God tends to show up. The propitious smiles of heaven. Washington said at the end that by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectations. For I had four bullets through my coat. Two horses shot under me yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. That was Washington's letter after that French and Indian War. He carried that with him. There, you can see that also in a guy named Winston Churchill who was almost identical situation. In World War I, he was a young man fighting. In World War II is when everybody known, knew him. He became famous. But his worldview got shaped in World War I. He was on an, a scouting mission in World War I. He was ambushed. And instead of fleeing like everybody else, he said something overcame him. He, he turned his pony and he went right into the ambush and he dispatched two of the enemy. On the other side, he turned his pony around, he came through and he dispatched three more. Afterward, he was writing a letter to his mother where he said that there was nary a bullet that touched my, my pony, my tunic, or myself. I believe I was preserved for higher things. And it set Winston Churchill on a path of expecting that when he did the right thing, God would show up on his behalf. He was very similar to Washington. World War II, totally outnumbered, completely outgunned, waiting for the Americans to get in. His only job was to make sure they didn't surrender. The difference between faith, action, expecting God, and fate, where whatever will be, will be. My choices don't matter. My actions don't matter. That picture of fate is dangerous in Christianity because it leads to armchair, rocking chair Christendom where we don't take action, we don't step out for God, we don't initiate anything because we think, well, I mean, if God wanted it to happen, well, he'd just make it happen. There's a difference between fate and faith. The faith part First ingredient, it has to know what God wants. Because to know what God wants is what puts you on the correct path. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And maybe the best biblical example, or maybe I should just say my favorite, David and Goliath. <clears throat> And there, the language that David uses when he confronts Goliath is very illustrative. Well, we're we're going to pick it up when David is, he has made the choice, he has stepped out of the crowd, he has been Mr. Action, and he has volunteered, in fact, he has persuaded King Saul to let him go fight Goliath. Nobody is, wants David to go out there, nobody's asking him. David is asking for permission to go. He is persuading King Saul. A lion and a bear both came at me when I was watching over my father's sheep. Let me go out there. This Philistine will be just like him. Chapter 17, look at verse 45. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Now, in that language, you can see what is going on in David's mind. Does, does that language indicate that David thinks he is stronger physically than Goliath? It does not. Does that language indicate that David thinks he has a better steel or iron in his sword? He's not even carrying a sword. Does David think he has better armament? What does the language indicate? But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. He expects God to show up. Notice, David's the only one that stepped forward. He took action. And once he got out there, he expects, he has prayed, and his faith is that God is going to show up. Part of this discussion, the difference between faith versus fate, to me is the rewards for obedience, punishment for disobedience. If it was true that everything was simply fate, that God would do in your life whatever he wanted to do, whether you chose to do it or not, if that was true, where is the reward for obedience? Where's the punishment for not obeying? God is definitely a rewarder. And there are definitely punishments for disobedience. Clearly, the worldview is that it's in, we're supposed to take action. We're supposed to make up our minds to, to follow God, in some case, go and confront enormous circumstances. David did this. And look at the reward. God rewarded David with a perpetual kingdom. He, he told them, as long as your family line obeys my statutes, there'll be somebody on the throne forever. God honored David. Now people remember, David made enormous mistakes. Huge. Huge. And yet, why did God stick with him? Why did God stick with what he called his friend Abraham? These men... These people at different times, in faith, stepped out and took on enormous obstacles. And God rewarded that. Those men, those people, earned a special spot. That Hebrews chapter 11 hall of faith, those people all took amazing action. They stepped out. And the thing about us, we, we, you may not have a Goliath in front of you, the thing is, God rewards faith in action. He does. Faith in action. Well, we're going to start winding this down. Another person very similar to this, Abraham Lincoln. When Lincoln became president, <clears throat> he was in the White House, and he, there was a friend of his from Illinois. The friend had learned of a plot to assassinate him. And he got on a train and went all the way to the White House, to D.C., to alert him, to tell him in private. He couldn't just pick up a phone. You couldn't send a text. He, he didn't even want to send. Telegram was just coming in. He got on a train, and he went to talk to him face to face. In the White House, they sit down. And his friend, who's a pastor, begins to relate to him of the, what he has learned about the assassination attempt in his life. And Lincoln responds, he said, I have ambassadors in 
five different countries that are all reporting to me of plots in those countries to come kill me. I have a good friend in this town, Washington, D.C., that has learned of many plots. The Southerners can swim across the, the river and get to me with, with ease. The only thing keeping me alive is the hand of God. And he said, I don't care if I die with a dagger through the heart or from the inflammation of the lungs when I'm an old man. I'm going to take the advice of my Savior, and I'm going to be ready to die at all times. But he went on. He reached over and he grabbed his Bible, and he opened to Deuteronomy chapter 3. Please turn there with me. Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible. I always like to remind myself, this did not happen in a pastor's office in a church where somebody reached over and grabbed a Bible. This took place in the White House, where our president initiated this discussion. When told about an attempt on his life, he opened the Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 3 and told his pastor friend to start reading at verse 23. This is Moses talking to the children of Israel. And I, Moses, I besought the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might. I, Moses, I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan that goodly mountain in Lebanon. But Moses, in talking to the children of Israel, he is saying, I asked God, I want to go over and I want to see this promised land. Because remember, the Israelites, for generations, knew they were supposed to be in the promised land. They weren't walking on the right road. They were not obeying God. And because of that, they did not reap the rewards of going into the promised land. They walked in the wilderness for 40 years until God raised up a generation that would follow him. Now that they're on the right road, they're going to go over into the promised land. And what's Moses asking? Live my whole life with this promise? I helped these people get out of Egypt. They were slaves. Lord, let me see the promised land. Look at verse 26. But the Lord was wroth, that's angry, the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. What's he saying there? Moses said that God was angry with me because of, the, for the sake of you Israelites, that you sinned, you murmured, you turned your back on God, and because of that, he's angry with me. This is Moses' testimony. And the Lord said unto me, let it suffice thee, speak no more unto me of this matter. God tells Moses, I'm, there's something that's going to happen. And this might be the part where we are looking through a glass darkly and you don't see the whole truth, but you have to trust me, Moses. You are not going over Jordan. You're going to die on this side. And I don't even want you to bring it up to me again. Let it suffice thee. You're a good leader. You're very meek. You do the things I tell you. Don't bring it up to me again. Abraham Lincoln read these verses to his pastor, friend. And he told him that in the past six weeks, I have read these verses over and over, and the words seem to jump off at the page, off the page to me. And I feel that God is speaking to me through the life of Moses. He said, I see myself in Moses. Moses was supposed to die as an infant. 
The children of Israel in slavery, the Pharaoh had them kill all the male children, but his mother wouldn't do it. His mother hit him, put him in that ark of bulrushes, put him in the Nile because she couldn't bear to see him die. The daughter of Pharaoh goes down, finds him in the weeds, takes him out by a miracle. A miracle. And Moses' mother is even brought into Pharaoh's court to nurse and raise the baby to full adulthood. A miracle. Lincoln says, I see myself in his life. I was born in Kentucky. Was raised in such poverty, we had a three-walled log cabin. Even in the winter, there was one wall that was exposed to the elements. His mother died when he was very young, and they were so poor, the pastor, the preacher, did not even circuit around there for another month to bury his mother. It was a miracle that he became a lawyer. He didn't go to law school. Taught himself. It was a miracle that Lincoln got elected into the White House. Stop here for a second. Two years before the presidency, where Lincoln's elected, he runs for what he thinks is the highest office he could ever attain, the senator from Illinois. And he's running against Stephen Douglas. And Stephen Douglas was about the best order, the most well-known politician of that time. Stephen Douglas was very well esteemed in a lot of places. Lincoln challenged this guy in their Senate debate. He went to every single town, every speech that Douglas gave. He got up on the stage with him and demanded a debate to challenge him face-to-face. This is what started what we see today, face-to-face debates. He forced Douglas to take some positions. Lincoln, of course, hated slavery. And everybody knew that. It was established in those speeches. But Douglas's response was, I really don't care that much about slavery. And he always deflected the question. And it worked for him. He said over and over that he really didn't care. And he soothed, he pacified the people in Illinois who wanted to keep slavery and those who didn't because, well, he didn't really care. So he didn't take a strong position. It worked for Douglas, unfortunately. Lincoln came very close, but he lost, and it crushed him. He had put so much work into those speeches. He was walking on the road he knew God wanted to, wanted him to, and yet he was defeated. He was crushed. He went home and he told a friend, that's the last you'll ever see of me in politics. I'll be in the courtroom forever. I'll be a lawyer. I will never try this again. Three weeks later, leaders of the Republican Party came to him and said, we've been following your speeches. We thought they were amazing. And you have to run for president. We will nominate you as president. And Lincoln said, you don't understand. I can't beat him in my home state. How am I going to beat him in the nation? And they talked to him. They said that you, you never know what events are going to transpire. And over the next two years, this is what transpired. Events <clears throat> like John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry it brought slavery to the forefront that the nation was so engulfed in the debate of slavery that people were very likely not going to vote for a Douglas who said, what does slavery matter? They needed somebody that they could count on, that they knew their position. And in the debates that lost him the Senate campaign, it painted his opponent, Douglas, who would run for president, He was the favorite. It painted him into a corner that, well, he doesn't really care about slavery. So he had to do an about face and try to tell everybody, well, I do, I do, I do care about slavery. Well, it didn't work. 
and Lincoln won. And something that he thought would be the end of his career in politics actually won him the presidency. Unbeknownst to him, he kept walking on the path where God would show up. So now Lincoln's in the White House, and this friend comes to tell him, I know there's plans to assassinate you. <clears throat> Lincoln reads these words, and he says, I think I'm just like Moses. I think God took me out of Kentucky, brought me to the White House, just like God took Moses out of the river and put him in Pharaoh's temple. He said there's something else about Moses, as we read here, that God would not allow Moses to go across the Jordan into the Promised Land. And he told his friend in the White House, every time I pray to God, Every time I talk to God on one of my nightly walks about seeing this great blessed land on the other side of slavery, to see where we are all in peace and there's not this horrible bloodshed anymore, every time I think those thoughts, my spirit steps up and it is as if God is telling me, do not talk to me about that. You will not see it. That I would only see it, he told his friend, from a far distant place in the land of the dead. Civil War ended on April 9th. Lincoln was shot April 14th, less than a week later. He did not live to see it. What's more, in that conversation with his friend from Illinois, he said, I am perfectly okay with this. It's an honor. It's a privilege. He said, what other living person has ever emancipated four million people? He went on to say that Jesus was very similar where this divine law where one person dies for a bunch of other people. Moses died for the nation. Jesus died for the world. And he said, I will gladly die for my nation. Why tell that story? It is an illustration of faith versus fate. Even though Lincoln was convinced that God had told him, you're not going to live to see the other side of this terrible war. He did not lean back in his chair and think, well, whatever be, will be. This guy fought day and night for his ideas. He put himself out there where God could use his hand, where God could, in his own, what Lincoln said, ever since we have issued the emancipation, our battles have turned God is smiling on us in places where before the battle would just turn against us and we would lose. Now it's turning for us and we're winning every time. Lincoln did not accept, he did not have the worldview of just whatever will be, will be. He believed, he was absolutely convinced that God had told him he was going to die and he was perfectly fine with that. As it says here, Moses did not murmur to God. and Lincoln told his friend, I want to be like that. I don't want anybody to ever say that they heard me complain or sob that I was to be a victim for my nation. What an example. What a, what a picture of a Christian getting his marching orders from what he reads in the Word of God, seeing a direction for his life, and actively, every day, pursuing with diligence down the reward of that trail. Much, much different than what way too many Christians today say, well, whatever will be, will be. I don't think God rewards that kind of thinking. But we have many, many examples where he does show his arms strong on those who 
their heart is perfect toward him. And when they go and they confront evil, confront circumstances, it gives God that opportunity to show up and win a great victory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the things that are contained in your word. We pray that each one of us would be strengthened and encouraged. Father, we pray for pastor as he travels that you would go with him, that his flights would be on time, that the, the minutes would, the hours would seem but just a few minutes. And we pray, Lord, that you bring him home safe. Be with all of us throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.